Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. We have a packed program for you this week. We'll be talking about the science of gardening. There's the good, the bad and the ugly in the garden and obviously the good wildlife we very much want to encourage but we do find two or three new pests and two or three new diseases arriving in the UK every year. We'll hear about a horrific breach of medical ethics by American researchers in Guatemala in the 1940s. A group of medical researchers, some of them quite prominent doctors, infected over 1,300 Guatemalan inmates, psychiatric patients, commercial sex workers and soldiers with sexually transmitted diseases in ways that could only be described as a living hell for many of their subjects. And we'll find out about an unprecedented disclosure of product information by a medical technology company. Personally, I feel there's no situation where the profession and the public don't deserve the opportunity to have the totality of evidence that's available about a product. I just can't fathom why we're in a situation where maybe sometimes half of the trials aren't published and, and, and sometimes key information in the trials that are published is, is not available to investigators and others who are seeking to try to understand this balance of risks and benefits. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is here with me. And my colleague, Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals Correspondent, is here too. And our special guest this week is Roger Williams, Head of Science at the Royal Horticultural Society. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. As a keen gardener, I'm particularly pleased that you're here. So first of all, let me ask you, how much science is there in 21st century gardening well, there's a great deal of science in 21st century gardening, I would say that, wouldn't I? But looking back in the past, the Royal Horticultural Society's heritage was set up as an organisation to advance the science and art and practice of horticulture. And in fact, Charles Darwin was a founder member of the original scientific committee. So there's a, a kind of rich heritage there of science at the Royal Horticultural Society. What we're focusing on particularly now are three key areas. One's to do with, if you like, the science that underpins horticulture itself and the advisory service that we offer to our members. The second area is around gardens and the environment. And the third area is to do with gardens and wildlife. And I think those latter two are probably areas that people wouldn't necessarily associate with the Royal Horticultural Society, but they're increasingly important. Indeed. One reason is the impact of climate change. Is that actually having an effect on gardens in the UK or, or not yet? We certainly find from the questions that we get from people phoning into our advisory service that gardeners are very aware of the weather, obviously, and they're very aware of changes and kind of extreme weather events. Now, clearly, that's different to climate change and the long-term trends, but it does mean that we've got a receptive audience to start talking about some of these issues and begin to think about the ways that gardens can mitigate climate change and how people can begin to adapt to it. And an area that we're particularly interested in 
is looking at gardens in the urban context. Um, Because here, although we're not suggesting that domestic gardens and vegetation can overall reduce the temperature of cities and that the urban heat island effect that we're all concerned about, what it certainly can do is provide localised oases of cooler temperature. And then, of course, there's the flood risk mitigation that you get from planting as opposed to having hard paved surfaces. And, of course, crucially, the benefits for biodiversity and the potential to provide corridors for wildlife joining up green spaces within cities in the broader countryside. Yes, there are studies, I think, which show that urban and suburban gardens actually contain more biodiversity than a lot of British farmland. Isn't that right? Yes, it's interesting. There are certain species, the common frog being one, hedgehogs being another, that are more abundant in gardens. We're particularly interested in pollinating insects as well. Obviously, these are crucial for our food crops, pollination services that they deliver. And pollinating our flowers and making sure our gardens are attractive is is very important to us as well. And when you stop and think about it, perhaps it shouldn't be surprising that gardens are particularly rich habitats because what we aim to do in a garden is have flowers for as long a period as we can during the season. And so we're providing diverse nectar sources throughout the year and pollen sources. So they're, they're really good food sources for pollinating insects. Whereas, of course, in an arable context, you may have a, a bit of a feast and famine issue going on with an ar- annual crop flowering for a brief period of time and then relative scarcity of food sources. And I believe, building on this, the RHS is sponsoring a wildlife garden competition. Tell us about that. Uh, Yes, we're very keen to get people gardening, obviously, but in particular to understand and appreciate the wildlife value of gardens. And one way of doing that is through this big wildlife garden competition where we're inviting people to submit things that they're doing in their garden that are particularly good for wildlife. So it's obviously to do with providing food sources, providing habitat, and basically you can register your garden and demonstrate the good things that you're doing for wildlife in it. And if you're successful, you uh, get membership of the RHS for a year you get to attend a masterclass at uh, Hampton Court Palace Flower Show and uh, we're hoping lots of people will sign up for that. I mean I'm also a keen gardener and I've just put in a pond which is my first attempt to do this but watching young people around that pond you see the fabulous opportunity for gardening and engagement Mm. with learning and engagement around science and I wondered whether we could do more to encourage you to work more with the curriculum and engaging young people mm. in science and perhaps working across the generations. Two things I'd like to say about that. Absolutely, I agree. And one of the things I find so exciting about gardening science and the opportunities it opens up is that literally on people's back doorsteps, they've got an environment that reflects what's going on in nature that can engage them in science, just as you've said. And there are bigger stories that we can start to talk about in terms of global biodiversity loss and the role that individual gardeners can play in helping to reverse that. So that, I think, is is a very exciting opportunity. And secondly, specifically on your point about education, we do have a big gardening education program it's a a key part of our activities and engaging communities in gardening as well and I think you're right that what we haven't yet done very effectively is link that to the science of gardening so the practice of gardening is something that we're very actively working with schools about Um, but it's really building on the science of gardening that I think there is an opportunity there and children are always fascinated particularly in insects and so we've really got a, a kind of a receptive audience I think. Roger, just before we move on from gardening to medical ethics, I just wanted to ask you one last thing, which I know you're preoccupied about, and that is, in a sense, too much biodiversity. There are too many nasty, invasive pests, plants from the rest of the world colonising our gardens. What's your attitude to that? 
Well, yes. I mean, there's the good, the bad and the ugly in the garden. And obviously the good wildlife we very much want to encourage. But we do find through the RHS advisory service that we have two or three new pests and two or three new diseases arriving in the UK every year. And we're often if you like, on the front line of spotting those things because we've got 380,000 members out there avidly watching their gardens and effectively sampling the environment for us and sending in anything that they find that's odd. Um, And that is a concern. Now, not all of these pests and diseases prove to be a problem. Some of them don't become established. Some of them only become established and a problem after many years. Um, But we work very closely with the statutory authorities where these pests arrive and they are um, thought to be of concern. Okay, now let's turn to medical ethics and an awful breach of ethics by American researchers in Guatemala more than 60 years ago, which involved deliberately infecting people with sexually transmitted diseases without their consent. Last week, the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues delivered its report on this shameful episode. Andrew talked to the Commission's chair, Amy Gutman, who is also president of the University of Pennsylvania. Perhaps we could just start, just just remind us exactly what were the concerns that led to President Obama setting up this commission initially? President Obama learned, as did all of us learn, that from 1946 to 1948, a team of medical researchers in the United States Public Health Service intentionally infected Guatemalans without their consent with sexually transmitted diseases. This came to light only 60 years after it happened. So he asked the Presidential Commission, which I chair, to do a thorough fact-finding into what happened in Guatemala. And your report goes into an enormous amount of detail. What were perhaps some of the, the most chilling and surprising things, even compared to what we started to learn a few months ago? found out through reading over 125,000 pages of documents that a group of medical researchers, some of them quite prominent doctors, infected over 1,300 Guatemalan inmates, psychiatric patients, commercial sex workers and soldiers with sexually transmitted diseases in ways that could only be described as a living hell for many of their subjects. They not only did not obtain their consent, but in many cases this was bad science as well as egregious ethics. And some of the details that we account for in the report, which have not been previously known, include how individuals were treated in the grossest violation of their human rights by the research team. These researchers also knew that it was important to obtain consent because they had worked in the United States and in a prison in Indiana and had actually gone to some lengths to get the consent of the prison inmates. They just chose to apply a double standard. So the commission finds these researchers not only to have committed egregious moral wrongs, but also to be morally culpable for those wrongs. 
And just put this into historical context, obviously there have been a lot more precise ethical guidelines that have come out since, but of course this was taking place during and just after the, the period of the Nuremberg trials and the horrendous Nazi experiments that were taking place in Europe. Where would you compare this with that and what was standard experimental practice at that time? So we took great care not to simply impose current standards which reflect a much greater development of rules and regulations on the past. At the same time, we looked at what the ethical standards of the time that were known were, and we had to conclude that these researchers not only violated the ethical standards of our time, but violated the ethical standards of their time. The first sentence of the Nuremberg Code, written in 1947 in the wake of medical experiments conducted by Nazi doctors, could not have been clearer in stating the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. These doctors violated that basic first sentence of the Nuremberg Code. And they also inflicted harms that were disproportionate to any prospective benefits on the subjects. Well, thank you, Andrew, for that rather chilling interview. Why do you think it's taken 60 years for this to come out? Because presumably the researchers would have published academic and medical papers on this work. There must have been clues out there. Well, there, there were some published materials that came out of this trial, although, as, as Amy Goodman was just saying, a number of the trials really didn't lead to any, as it were, successful treatment, and therefore, as even is still a problem today, of course, the, the negative results typically didn't get distributed. But I think clearly, as she said also, there was partly a deliberate attempt to keep the methodology is pretty secret because there clearly was some sense by the researchers that they couldn't have got away with this in the US or elsewhere and therefore it wasn't something they wanted to encourage widespread discussion of. Where it actually came out ultimately was a historian in the US who was drawing comparisons with another famous clinical ethical scandal, the Tuskegee experiments, where that sometimes is misinterpreted as having also intentional injection of sexually transmitted diseases. In fact, in that case, there, there was some denial of treatment. Here, of course, they went much further. And it was only when she went through the archives and started unearthing this data that the scandal broke last year. Diana, what do you think we can learn retrospectively from this episode? It seems to me that it might be useful to actually point out that it led to bad science and to try and tease out what that was, so that it really puts a line under it. I think from my perspective, being very much at the interface between the doing of science and the public communication of it, one of the things that saddens me so much about this is the contribution it will make to the distrust of scientists and the practice of science. And the the killer quote in that interview for me was the sense that even by the standards of the day these people had fallen short and that I think will unfortunately resonate quite um, loudly. Yes, thank you Roger, I, I agree. Now it's time for our contribution from the British Medical Journal. Over to Deborah Cohen at the BMJ. Medtronic have been in the firing line recently, from the medical community through the media to the US Senate. Questions are being asked about the safety of its recombinant human bone morphogenic protein product, called Infused, used during spinal surgery. Holland Krumholtz, a professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine, used this scrutiny to offer Medtronic a chance to do what no other medical technology company has done, 
the chance to open up all the data on Infuse to independent scrutiny and fund the research looking at it. Harlan, how did you persuade Medtronic to hand over the data and invest in your programme? An opportunity opened up with, with Medtronic because they were facing some pretty severe criticism about one of their products, bone morphogenic protein 2, and it led to questions about their ethics and the strength of their literature and really whether this drug had um, harms that were unappreciated. This gave us an opportunity to step forward and to talk to them about a model that we had been developing and to see whether they might want to participate. They were at that same time thinking that they wanted to get an independent review of their data, but what I convinced them about was for them simply to hire somebody to do an independent review, if that group were to find something in favor of the company wouldn't wouldn't fly so well in the public, even if the right thing had been done. And so we were able to talk to them about about this model that would both be fair to them, but serve society's interest in getting out the data. And how do you ensure that they release all the data, including that data that perhaps doesn't show their product in the best possible way? Yeah, that's a really good question, one I've heard a lot. And I think the best way is through the wisdom of crowds. We're going to post publicly all the data that they're going to release to us. And if anybody knows of anything else that's that's there, uh, we hope they'll come forward and and let us know. I think it would be awful for the company to hold back these data. I mean, not just from an ethical standpoint, but from a reputational point of view. Finally, they're contractually obligated to provide us all the data. It's in our contract with them. This is the first scheme of its type, but Harlem feels that it's been far too long coming. He hopes it will usher in a new openness in the relationship between the medical industry and researchers. Yeah, well, personally, I feel there's no situation where the profession and the public don't deserve the opportunity to, you know, have the totality of evidence that's available about a product. I just can't fathom why we're in a situation where maybe sometimes half of the trials aren't published and and sometimes key information in the trials that are published is, is not available to investigators and others who are seeking to try to understand this balance of risks and benefits. We will probably learn ways to tweak and improve and refine this model, but the, the driving force behind it to, to free the data so, so it can be available for open review is, uh, you know, I, I see no compromise on that. I just think it's, it's just something that we have to continue to push. And true, we have to be cognitive fairness issues all the way around, but, you know, we need to fix this problem. Thanks, Deborah, and thanks to the BMJ. So, another example of medical ethics in the news. Andrew, do you think this might be a precedent, as Harlan Krumholtz thought it might be a precedent for a new openness by the pharmaceutical and medical industries about their data? It would certainly be nice to think, and clearly the trend has been towards greater openness in clinical trial results, though very often that data is still released a long time after it's conducted. Of course, you know, there have to be some degree of sensitivities also to the commercial way in which companies develop their trials. They do have a a need to have some sort of a competitive edge. But I think what this highlights, and it goes back to what we were talking about before with Guatemala, is also the role of the intermediaries, selective publication of only parts of results, the positive parts. And that might be the company wanting to put a positive spin, but it's also, of course, the appetite of medical journal editors who are interested So there's a lesson there for how to ensure that all the data that Medtronic said went negative and positive to the regulators being released more widely. And there's an onus for journal editors. And there was a big sort of debate around journal editors in the fields that they were publishing in, that they should have reviewers and editors who were absolutely not conflicted, who were making the assessments on what what to publish and how. Thanks. 
I think that's all we have time for today. But before we close, I'd just like to go back to Roger and ask you how our listeners can enter the Big Wildlife Garden competition if they want to. If you log on to bigwildlifegarden, all one word, .org.uk, there's a big red button you can press and uh, enter the competition that way. Thanks for mentioning that. Diana and I may well be going in for it. I hope so. Please join us again next week for more fascinating stories from the world of science. Many thanks to Diana Garnham, Andrew Jack and Roger Williams for joining us today. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.